Well, hello, folks. I think we'll go ahead and get started here. I guess there's no one to, to give me a cue. Um, hi, and thanks for attending. Uh, my name is Ben Ware, and I'm the transportation reporter for the Austin American Statesman. And on behalf of our esteemed competitor, the Texas Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to our panel, which is an urban mobility reality check. Um, actually, when I was over at the AT&T Center checking in earlier, a fellow on the street handed me this and said it had the answer to all of civilization's problems right here. And I'm not sure why we're having this panel, given that, uh, but we'll go ahead. Um, with me, I, I have uh, city council members from five of the state's largest cities, um, and uh, I'll, represent, I'll uh, introduce them one at a time. They're not in order. Uh, first, uh, Austin City Council Member Dahlia Garza. Ms. Garza is in her first year on the New Look 10-1 Council in Austin, representing District 2 in Southeast Austin. She also serves on the Capital Metro Transit Agency Board, and uh, earlier in life she worked six years as an Austin firefighter, then went back to law school and became an Assistant Attorney General, and then now she's on the Council. Uh, we also have Houston City Council Member Ed Gonzalez. Uh, Mr. Gonzalez has been on the council since 2009, and he's been Mayor Pro Tem since 2012, and he chairs the council's Public Safety and Homeland Security Committee. He served 18 years on the Houston Police Department, reaching the rank of sergeant and investigating homicides. So we have a firefighter and a cop. <laughs> Feel very safe here. Uh, from Dallas, we have uh, City Council Member Philip Kingston. He was first elected in 2013 and is a member of the Police and Fire Pension Board. He was a founding member of the Dallas Bar Association's Public Forum Committee. Uh, here to my right, we have San Antonio City Council Member Ron Nirenberg. He also became a council member in 2013 and he chairs the Council's Quality of Life and Comprehensive Planning Committees and he serves on the board of the uh, Alamo Area Metropolitan Planning Organization, which crafts that area's long-range transportation plan. And he was previously general manager for Trinity University's KRTU-FM. And finally, um, uh, Pete Svarsbein, <laughs> a city council representative uh, from El Paso and a faculty member of the Texas Tech College of Architecture. He's been involved, uh, deeply involved in the effort to restore El Paso's historic streetcars, which led to a $97 million TxDOT grant last year. He also serves on the board of the Jewish Federation of El Paso and the El Paso Artist Guild. So here's our format today. The program's gonna last for an hour. We'll have about 45 minutes of uh, back and forth between the panel and, and, and me. And then we'll have about 15 minutes of questions uh, from you guys at the, at the microphone. Uh, please silence your cell phones. And it, if any of you want to tweet from this event, uh, the, please use the hashtag, hashtag TTF. So we have representatives of a very diverse group of cities here, at least when it comes to transportation. Just for instance, Austin has a whole lot of toll roads, as some of you may know, but just one commuter rail line and we don't have a freeway loop, famously, if you're from Austin. Dallas, on the other hand, has also has a whole bunch of toll roads, even more than we do, and it has the largest light rail system in the country. Houston has had toll roads since the early 1980s, and with TxDOT's involvement, they keep adding more of them. But as a relative newcomer to light rail, 
and doesn't have nearly as many miles as Dallas does. I'm, I'm told they have about 22 miles of light rail now. Uh, but it does have two highway loops, and uh, they're building a third one somewhere near uh, Bastrop, I think. <laughs> um, <Pretty close. laughs> San Antonio has no toll roads and no rail, which puts them in a, a, a club of their own. But according to the Texas A&M Transportation Institute, they have less grinding traffic than the first three cities I mentioned. And then El Paso has a smattering of toll roads. I think they're in place, or at yeah, least there's, one. There's, there's one. And is planning to build a streetcar. So, panel, I address this to all of you, and I guess we can go right to left on this if you want to. Given that, and any other transportation elements you want to uh, bring in, I wanted to ask each of you to talk about where your city stands in terms of mobility, how it got its tolls and rails and other elements, and where things might be going. Dalia? Oh, this right. Yeah. Okay, I thought they're right. Um, I, you know, for a long time, Austin wanted to be this, a sleepy college town because of the very institution that you're in right now. Um, there was resistance to growth. Um, I think that there is, there, there is a pretty strong um, anti-growth movement in Austin. So that, that's led to where we are now. There's also um, a big environmental community here in Austin, and that has prohibited some development in parts of Austin that are on protected land. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of led where we were, and I think that resistance to growth has um, caught up with us, really. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how we created this wonderful city, and now we're, we're, we have all these people moving here because we've created this wonderful city, and um, now, we're in, now we're in trouble. I read a quote from, a, I think, the Texas A&M Institute, and they said that even if Austin implemented every solution out there, we'd still be in a situation where, where our traffic is, is really, really bad. So um, we're having to play a lot of catch up, and I think that the, you're gonna hear the word multimodal modal a lot probably, but that really is the key um, to, to, to fixing our situation. I, I think the, the lack, that there's been a general lack of planning, unfortunately, <coughs> with um, land development and including that land development planning with our transit, and I, I think we're moving in a direction where as we are developing more, and, and Austin's facing a lot more sprawl than, than um, we weren't really a sprawl city, and so we're facing that. And so um, we're starting to have conversations about putting, and I know we're gonna get to the question about density, but putting density on, trans, on transit corridors um, and implementing housing and affordable housing near transit corridors to get people. And another, another difference in Austin, then I'll, I'll quit here in just a second. Um, is our business center is really downtown. We don't have business centers all throughout the city like a lot of cities do. So that's another thing that we need to, we need to start working on is getting, and we're starting, we're getting business centers um, throughout Austin, but that's, it's gonna be multimodal, it's gonna have to be bicycles, improving our, our, our transit system, um, the lack of rail. Uh, Austin's voted it down a couple of times. So um, we, need to, we need to work on that and, um, and really implement a multimodal system, and I think we're working towards that. Councilmember Kingston in Dallas. Um, well, like most other um, post-war cities, Dallas is um, Dallas's transportation problems are problems of social issues, uh, land use issues, and just flat, outdated thinking. Um, we hollowed out in the '60s, '70s, and '80s as People left for a variety of social reasons. We could argue about until the pyramids were three feet high. But the uh, 
the, the, real, the real issue is, is that we have a transportation system that serves our suburbs and doesn't serve our urban core. And that's what we've been trying to address with these other modes. We've, we, have the, we have the nation's largest, uh, longest street car, uh, light rail system, but it doesn't really serve the urban core. It has, it's built on the spoke system really to serve the suburban partners in our regional um, transit agency. Um, and we've, we've just started to try uh, modern streetcar, um, bringing back what once was a very vibrant streetcar system to Dallas. And we're building out as fast as we can uh, bike infrastructure. But it, there's, there remains this, this <laughs> fundamental tension, which actually kind of, uh, it, it really permeates all of our uh, issues, political issues in Dallas today, it's, is are we, the 1965-1975 model city of uh, residential areas, single-family, low-density residential neighborhoods far away from employment centers requiring people to drive long distances, or are we going to basically force densification, which may or may not be a word, by, by choking off those high-speed freeway connections? Councilmember Sarsby. Thank you. Um, so El Paso has been in, in a situation um, partially due to geography um, where um, a lot of projects that should have happened in El Paso um, have not happened and weren't adequately funded from the state. Um, so in a lot of ways, uh, the projects that are going on in El Paso currently um, in terms of highway development as well as a streetcar sort of playing catch up. Um, in context of some of the projects that are, that are occurring, like the Border West Expressway, um, the GO 10 project, which is creating frontage roads and um, expanding the capacity of I-10 uh, within the west side of El Paso, these are projects that probably should have happened um, decades ago, but for whatever reason didn't. So um, we're working on a loop to, to create around the city, but a lot of those projects came from the 2008 Comprehensive Mobility Plan. Um, in relation towards the streetcar, um, the streetcar's genesis came about largely through the 2011, um, 2011 Comprehensive Plan of El Paso called Plan El Paso. Um, it was voted the best smart growth plan from Atlantic Monthly um, for any city in 2011. And in this plan, it, it really called for a focus on infill development and on redeveloping downtowns, um, on redeveloping El Paso's downtown and core. Um, one of the methods suggested in this that was ultimately um, went through the state was the El Paso Streetcar Project. Um, this is a plan that I think is, is one that, that I've been a, a large advocate for and one that I think is going to have really two strong, um, two strong uh, things occurring from it. One is I think it, it is going to be um, the, the glue that is going to connect, connect hundreds of millions of dollars of public investment and private investment so far in our downtown. In 2012, El Paso um, overwhelmingly approved a $480 million quality of life bond project uh, for a new arena, a children's museum, a Hispanic cultural center. Um, we've had a two-year-old baseball stadium now um, that is the most well-attended baseball stadium all of minor league baseball. Um, and there's hundreds of millions of dollars of private investment with new hotels as well as downtown residential development occurring, popping up um, as we speak. The other thing about our streetcar project, which I think is really tremendous, is that being a city councilman and being a, a person from the border, 
Um, we oftentimes have a challenge in communicating our unique identity to the rest of East Texas, um, which I guess is everybody here, and um, to the rest of the country. And um, <laughs> never heard that. Y'all are all it's East awesome. Texas. <laughs> <laughs> From us, you're East. So. Um, but what, what's interesting about the streetcar project that El Paso is embarking on is we're not using replica vintage streetcars, we're not using modern streetcars. What we're actually utilizing are our old PCC vintage streetcars, ones that used to run every day between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Um, there's very few cities, I think, in the entire world that have an international streetcar line, and as a city, we're choosing to reclaim our history and show it off with pride, and I think that that's something um, that is really tremendous and forward-thinking for our city. So, yeah. Councilmember Gonzalez. Thank you. Some? Well, Ben, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for moderating and I uh, want to thank all of you for attending and the Texas Tribune Festival for five wonderful years uh, and, and uh, all the sponsors that make it happen. Uh, I'm proud to represent my hometown, uh, the city of Houston. It's a great city. It's a growing and dynamic city. And uh, it, it, it's really just... A lot of wonderful things are happening there. We have a major port system. Uh, we have a, uh, we just opened our second international airport. Uh, we uh, just uh, landed a commercial space uh, port as well that we're trying to, to develop. That's exciting for, for the future when you consider uh, the strength of NASA historically and the manufacturing base that's there, uh, largest medical center in the world. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're a major uh, employment city and so, uh, with that comes a lot of challenges, and so I think that we've seen a, a, history, a city that's evolved over the years, but its transportation systems did not. And so I think that brought, again, some of the transportation challenges that we have today. Uh, in the 80s, we did see our toll road system begin to develop. Uh, it's now over 83 miles. Uh, we have a very uh, robust uh, high-occupancy vehicle uh, program that moves a lot of folks that are driving with more than two passengers from the suburbs back into town. We developed initially one light rail uh, in 2004, and now it's three. Uh, and so uh, not as, uh, and, and I think there's definitely lessons we can learn from Dallas. And yes, I said we can learn from Dallas as well. <laughs> and so, uh, but, but I think that, you know, uh, not that to do. <laughs> but we, we definitely have uh, a lot of things on the plate right now. One thing that, that I'm excited about is our metro system uh, just uh, launched its reimagining process. It was a very a comprehensive uh, community effort. Uh, it launched in August. Uh, we were finding that uh, local bus ridership was down, that it wasn't effective. It was very difficult to connect to uh, key uh, employment and activity centers. So all of that has been changed around. Now uh, you can catch a bus uh, usually in 15 minutes or less, 15 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's got its kinks, but we're working through that. We're just, again, trying to make it more effective. Uh, we expect that uh, local bus ridership will grow uh, approximately 20% over the next two years. At least that's the goal. Uh, and it'll connect, or it connects a million jobs to a million people. Uh, so uh, we're just trying to get back to the basics, if you will, try to make sure that we're also trying to make it a more effective system. Surprisingly, uh, our B-cycle stations are doing uh, very well in terms of trying to get people to utilize other modes of transportation. Uh, the goal has been to have a, a, a thousand uh, riders uh, over a hundred stations by 2017 and, and we're rapidly meeting uh, that goal. Uh, it's been uh, very effective and so people that think that folks don't want to you know, ride, ride bicycles or, or it's too hot, 
Uh, clearly, that's not the case. Uh, we're also completing our Bayou Greenways initiative that will be unparalleled anywhere in the nation where we're going to have 300 miles of connected uh, uh, bike trails and hiking trails all connected, uh, which is uh, impressive, and over 4,000 acres uh, of uh, green space that will develop over the years as well. So we're very excited about all the, those possibilities because we understand that uh, Millennials, uh, the new workforce that's developing out there, that's the kind of cities they want to live in. A in addition, again, to trying to meet the challenges of, of mobility and trying to be a more sustainable city. Uh, and also, uh, I think we're also uh, looking to, to borrow things that we're seeing other otherwise. We don't mind stealing good ideas, you know, looking at uh, Mobility ATX, for example, and how we could create a, a platform in Houston where the community can engage and, and help shape public policy. Also, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Joseph Cosper, for example, with Ride Scout. I've had conversations with him and how you could use, it's an Austin-based technology platform where you could get real-time information on all your transportation options in real time. So I'm a big fan of that. So I think that eventually technology is where we're going to kind of see where the gaps are and how we could close those. Thank you. Ron, San Antonio. Well, since my colleagues here from Texas are here, I'd, I'd just like to tell you the story about uh, transportation in Championship City. Um, <laughs> well, and, but to, to illustrate your point, uh, Ben, you talked about San Antonio doesn't have toll roads, it doesn't have uh, light rail. I think that what San Antonio's transportation history has illustrated is that you can't separate land planning and land use from transportation. What we're experiencing uh, now in San Antonio is the fact that, uh, you know, over the course of the years we've seen traffic develop, congestion develop in, in cities outside of San Antonio. Now we're starting to feel the influx of growth, the new one and a half million people that are going to be moving to San Antonio the next uh, 35 years. We're experiencing uh, the degrading of our transportation maintenance. We're also experiencing high congestion. And the reality is, the, as the impact of our transportation and infrastructure dollars decreases over the years, and thank, thank you, uh, Commissioner Bug, for being here, uh, you know, really championing uh, transportation dollars at the state level for us. Uh, but as, our, as the impact of transportation funding has decreased over the years through uh, the rise in CPI and so forth, we have seen our, the loss of the ability to maintain some of that infrastructure, really grow the network. But San Antonio, is a sprawling city. We're expansive. We're over 400, 500 uh, square miles in distance, so it's really a challenge for us to keep up with that infrastructure. So today, as it stands, there's a lot of hope yet because we have begun a, a comprehensive planning effort similar to uh, El Paso and Austin, where we are now uniting the efforts of uh, land development and land planning with the transportation needs. We're engaging in a multimodal, strategic multimodal transportation initiative that takes into account where people are living in these 13 different growth centers that we've identified. We're also leveraging technology. Uh, we now, thankfully, have rideshare back in San Antonio after some time. Uh, we're also looking at ways that we can improve our traffic management system using uh, state-of-the-art technologies for signaling. Uh, but the reality is we're all basically in a period of growth in all of our cities, I think, that we are really simply trying to stop the bleeding. Uh, Texas, and doesn't matter which of our cities, is growing at a phenomenal rate. And you know, many people run for office saying we're going to lower congestion. When we get into the seat, we re quickly realize what we have to work with. And at every level of government, whether it's federal, state, or local, it's been a challenge to find 
the resources necessary to take care of the network we have now, uh, let alone adding capacity. So we're having to add uh, options for people. We want people to be able to have the choice uh, to use a bike if they're only you know, a couple miles away from work. And we want to have options for people to walk to work. And then we also want to uh, account for new and innovative technologies that may be on the horizon that we, we can't even conceive of yet. Uh, so we're trying to, to uh, work with our policies at every level through the comprehensive planning effort to identify how we can be ready for that future. Well, um, you brought it, you lead to my next question about the, the tie between land planning and transportation and how one leads to the other and back again. The implicit conclusion behind that is that cities can somehow or another meaningfully impact traffic congestion through guiding development. Uh, things like nodular development, encouraging density. Uh, but I'm wondering how much effect city planners and MPOs can really have on the development market in a relatively mature southwestern city like all of you uh, represent. How much meaningful change can you make in the traffic congestion situation through trying to alter development in year 150, or in the case of San Antonio, year 350. Uh, any of you want uh, uh, to address that? I'll speak for Houston briefly. <clears throat> a couple years back, we found that um, a lot of the growth was happening outside of Houston. It was happening in, in our suburban areas, uh, you know, Woodlands, Pearland, Sugarland, all these other surrounding cities. And we had the proverbial donut, if you will, where downtown was basically empty. And so, and, and a lot of the neighborhoods really weren't developing between our, our outer ring. And Houston will soon have three completed rings, which will be the, uh, my understanding, is the only American city with, with, uh, with having that, which means we just have a lot of sprawl. And, um, and so what we did is we changed our development code uh, to make it uh, more, more feasible for development to occur. And we found the right balance by allowing some tools for communities that wanted to kind of keep the makeup of their, of their communities still intact by, by allowing certain, certain rules. And Houston doesn't have any zoning, by the way, by, uh, which makes it a added, an added challenge. But, uh, but, but we also allowed for more densification, more housing units to be built per acre, which the development community uh, was real supportive and, and obviously wanting so that they could build or rebuild a, you know, the inner core. We also uh, allowed, uh, where we had a much stronger focus on downtown as well. Uh, for developing more housing units. And so uh, we're really starting to see a, a rebirth of the downtown district, but we purposefully uh, have tried to densify more because we understand it's very costly to deliver services in a sprawling city when if we could try to generate some more transit-oriented development, for example, then those services could be delivered at shorter distances. You get more people out of the cars. A lot of the trips are very short. And uh, another phenomenon that we saw is that Houston's a very diverse city. Uh, one in five Houstonians is foreign-born. They hail from some other place in the world, and many of them have said, we're, we come from other countries where we're used to, yeah, traffic maybe, but robust, I mean, un, you know, options, you know, subways or other, other activities, uh, cycling, and, and, and so, uh, you know, we're hearing what, what they're asking for, and so that's something that's also helping shape public policy is our diversity. And I'll add to that, I mean, our philosophy in San Antonio has been that government can help prime the pump, yeah. but it's not going to address all the issues. Um, I hope, Councilman Kingston, densification <laughs> is a word, because the, the goal should be that we try to build a city and we encourage the private sector activity that densifies 
places that, that it's easier uh, to maintain the infrastructure, whether it's police service or it's roads, uh, we want to make sure that we have resources to match the need. And part of that is managing demand. So we have put a lot of effort into uh, trying to formulate a mix of regulation plus incentive within the urban core to, to boost up housing development. And it takes cooperation with school districts as well as uh, just the city and local governments. Uh, but we're also seeing the fruits of that labor. For instance, uh, former Mayor Castro, now Secretary Castro, had uh, initiated what is what we're calling the decade of downtown. We're in the middle of it now. And at the halfway mark, we're, we're well on our way to raising the kind of uh, housing units that we wanted to see downtown to help encourage more population downtown. We're also seeing uh, in strategic corridors like Broadway, for instance, if anyone knows San Antonio, where we have the museum districts now, we have uh, tremendous opportunities for retail and commercial establishment, plus mixed-use home development. What we're seeing there is that the private sector activity now is supporting itself. In fact, um, I saw the secretary on a plane one day, and he said, take a look at Broadway. It seems to be doing very well. Uh, we need to relook at how those incentives now are matching what's happening. And, and the philosophy needs to be, in my opinion, that if we want to see real development occur, if we want to see the identification, we have to make it profitable. And I don't think that we've done that well yet. We've, we've, we've put regulation in place. We've put incentives in place. But we also haven't taken care of the, the other parts of the, the pie. I, I just wonder how much in the end, though, that's going to mean. Like Austin has 10,000 residents, I think, downtown, 10 or 11,000. There was a goal to get it to 25,000 downtown residents. But the city's going to have, or the metro area is going to have supposedly 4 million people here in about 25 years. It it's still remains a small number. So what, you know, how much difference can that make is, well, is my question. I, I, I mean, I, Ron represents my mom. So <laughs> I grew up in San Antonio, so I got to see some of this. I used to work at 3rd and Alamo, where my grandparents' place was, right by the Broadway redevelopment sites that he's referencing. And so, <clears throat> I mean, you can, it, I, I really think the problem is, is a more inter, uh, intermediate term problem in that you've got, San Antonio has a lot of the same problems as Dallas does in that it's sliced and diced by elevated freeways through, its, through itself. And we've got tollways also which is another kind of market distortion in my view. And I think, we, I think the one thing I want, really want to add is that I think you have to se separate signal from noise on this. You, you get the state demographer saying, oh, the, uh, the population of the state's gonna double in the next 25 years or whatever. It's, it's bogus, that's like the, that, that was the, the lowest confidence prediction, but that's the one that grabs the headlines. And then you got TTI, a group that is fundamentally just an industry shill out there saying, your lives are horrible because your commutes are incredibly long. Well, think, if, think about whether your commute is actually really long. When they put out numbers for Dallas, for instance, they call it like an average 42 minute commute or some crap like that. Nobody in Dallas commutes 42 minutes. They're talking about somebody who's commuting from Frisco into our urban core. Well, look, I love those people, and I want them to have great lives, but I also don't want to subsidize their commute to take dollars back into Collin County. And there is a, there's a rebalancing that needs to happen, and if it happens on the backs of suburban commuters being inconvenienced, they don't vote for me. <laughs> well, if, if I could just out. jump in. <laughs> wow. Councilman Kingston is, a, is an inner city representative. <laughs> In San Antonio, Texas, 
80% of the population lives in the urban core, so the decision-making does happen in outside, outside, the, urban of the, core, outside yeah. the urban core. Hear your point, uh, and, and then it needs, to be, it needs to be a balanced approach. You want it to be tomorrow, you know, I, it, it'll take a little longer in San Antonio. My house got annexed in 1975 by the city of San Antonio. I haven't gotten over it. <laughs> I, and I guess I would add that um, maybe it doesn't have, maybe density doesn't, doesn't have a meaningful impact, but I, I would say it has an impact. Um, there's a, Austin has a lot of density bonus programs, and I think it is important, and, and it, like I said in the beginning, Austin has faced a lot of um, anti-growth, um, of the, of the anti-growth community, and it's because of that, I would say Austin's a little bit different because we, we do have more room. We're not, I guess, building locked. I just made up another word. Um, we have a lot of uh, places where um, buildings or, or residential can go up on transit corridors, and I do think it's important that we offer those density bonuses on those transit corridors because um, I, do, I do think people will use, our, 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 will use Cap Metro if they're close to, and part of that density bonus program is, is connected to how close you are to, um, to bus stops. Um, I remember one time on council there was a, a zoning um, case where the neighborhood behind the, the it was on Burnett Road, and the neighborhood behind this, this um, building was against it because they were against cut through traffic. Um, and one of the gentlemen, he played a video at council where and he showed the walk from where the development was to the, to the bus stop. And it was, I think, like a 0.2-mile walk. And, and, <laughs> and he was trying to illustrate it's not as close to transit as, as, as they're making it out to be. But it really was close. 0.2 miles is not a far walk. So um, I would say it's maybe not meaningful, but it, it, is, it does have an impact. And I, I think it is an important tool that we can use um, to get affordable housing more into the central city and to get our people closer to transit that they can depend on. Yeah, well, I, let's I, talk about, oh, oh, go ahead. No, I just, I just wanted to add on that I think that um, in the case of El Paso, it's, um, you know, obviously I, I think all of us in Texas, there's a, a pretty ingrained car culture when it comes towards transportation as a whole. So part of it is, is really looking at multimodal transportation and transit-oriented development to, to complement, you know, the sort of car, car culture that exists here. So. In the case of El Paso, um, you know, they, they, about a year and a half ago, they released the first um, Brio line, which is a bus rapid transit line. Um, the Montecito Apartments, which is a short smart growth complex, has already added about, um, I think it's about maybe 1,500 units so far, and they're looking at 5,000 units um, of mixed-use development um, that is predicated around one of the, the Brio lines. And then with the streetcar lines, I know that, you know, I've, I've been a councilman for about three months now, but I know that the planning department is looking at um, really incentivizing the streetcar corridor as a way to encourage densification, which if it didn't exist as a word before today, I, I, I think it should, should exist as a word. So um, I think there's a lot of options there. Well, let's, let's talk about light rail. Uh, the, Councilmember Kingston was talking about the, the uh, hub and spoke light rail system. In, in Dallas, and uh, um, you know, American cities, Texas cities, are not as centralized in their employment base as they used to be. It's normally 15 to 30 percent at most. You've got a lot of people working a lot of other places, and simultaneously, the federal support for light rail projects is not what it used to be. Dallas benefited from a time period when it was more like 80 percent federal support. Now it's 50 percent if you can 
you know, win the competition. So given all that and, and what that means to local taxpayers, I just wondered, I wondered your thoughts on whether light rail is, is worth the investment going forward. Well, if you don't mind me starting, I'll just say yes. Um, it, and DART is a great example to look at in, as to why it is worth it. And it's also a great example to look at for cities. If you, if you choose to follow in our footsteps of trying to build out a light rail system, there's some things you can learn that we didn't quite do right. One thing I'll have to thank El Paso for is by talking its commissioner at TxDOT into giving uh, transit dollars to El Paso for the first time in Texas history, we also got like 50 million bucks. It was fantastic. Thank you. But the, uh, the, 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 issue is, it, the issue really comes down to, I think, regionalism in a way. Well, the way we set up our DART is to do a, a one penny of the sales tax from all the regional partners. And the idea was that we were going to build out this light rail system that served all of the members. And it's proven to be very difficult to do. We can't serve the core of the system, the, the urban core of downtown Dallas, very well on, on the little spindly line that we drew through the middle of it. And we also haven't been able to deliver rail to Addison, which has contributed well over $200 million to DART. So it, there's some fundamental unfairness there. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's neither fish nor fowl. It doesn't work great as an urban tool, and it doesn't work great for the suburban partners. So if you're thinking about it, I would think through how you build it out, and I would, I would be in favor of build the core, let it prove itself, and add membership as you prove its worth. And, I, and I'll add to this, uh, <coughs> the, the regionalism component of this is, is extremely important. San Antonio famously, uh, two years ago, basically axed a plan for a downtown streetcar. And what we heard from constituents is that, you know, in a, in a downtown urban core, downtown streetcar design didn't make a whole lot of sense and didn't address the issues of transportation that the vast majority of San Antonians were feeling. The tale on that could be easily read as San Antonians continue to cling to their steering wheels and to their sod. <laughs> That's not true. What we're finding is that there is a healthy appetite for alternative modes of transportation despite that, but the, the streetcar uh, fiasco was more of a remnant of San Antonio in the past and not looking comprehensively at the future. So we're doing the comprehensive plan, uh, you know, and this comes on the heels of back in 2000, voters widely reject a rejected a comprehensive plan for uh, a, a citywide urban rail project. Now we have today a virtually unanimous city council investing half a million dollars in a, in a Lone Star Rail project, which is a regional corridor uh, that would be commuter rail between here and Austin, recognizing that regionalism and putting rail in a place that makes sense for economies and for communities to thrive is something that we should be investing in. And, and I contend this illustrates the fact that over the last 15 years, in, not only in San Antonio, but throughout the state of Texas, we are in a vastly different era than we were in 2000. You think back, Jack, excuse me, gas is relatively cheap today, but you think what you were paying for pre-9-11. Uh, congestion is relatively, uh, is, is terrible today compared to what it was in 2000. People need alternatives, and our goal is not to say you have to use a rail, you have to use a bus, you have to drive your, ride your bike. We want people to have the option uh, so we're working on a build scenario that includes all these other options. I think um, you asked about it, if it's still a good investment. Uh, we're fortunate that we just launched our, our third line and 
and we're happy about that, but, and I support it, but I'm also curious if, 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 if we're already too late into the game uh, to really develop a robust system. One of the challenges with Houston is that our workforce is not centralized. We have over six major employment centers when you look at the Energy Corridor, Medical Center, downtown, gallery area, Greenway. We have a lot of, so, so people are tra traveling in, in, in a number of places. And uh, not to introduce a, a, a wrinkle in all this, but I think uh, pretty soon we'll, we'll have to start thinking about the dynamic of, of driverless cars, for example, and what the public policy will be around that, and maybe more of a circulator system, if you will, where you know, transit will kind of go where, where, where the need is at in real time. Uh, and so these fixed lines that are very costly to develop, uh, sometimes very controversial, um, I think may be a, a kind of outdated conversation, if you will, because I think soon enough we'll, we will be talking about driverless vehicles and, and then the, the, the impact that that's going to have uh, you know, on, the, on, on the drivers and being without work and, and how those systems, what's the pu public policy going to be around that going into the future. And can we talk about the financing of all this or even other potentially large uh, urban mobility type investments? Uh, uh, Peter mentioned the, uh, the, the TxDOT 97 million that he got, and I think they gave five grants, 250 million, but that came from the Texas Mobility Fund, which is more or less tapped out. Almost every other source of money TxDOT has is uh, constitutionally dedicated to highways. So, you know, if cities are going to try to get further involved in, in, in urban rail and the feds are only given 50%, where in the world, how do you finance these, these sort of huge initiatives? I think the budgets are definitely going to, you know, be a challenge, and I think we can't build our, our, our way out of this problem. Uh, in fact, I, I'm a proponent even for, for going on a road diet where it makes sense, where certain roadways, maybe we need less lanes, you know, reduce some of the maintenance. Uh, create more dedicated bike lanes. We have our first one in Houston, the first dedicated bike lane. Funny story, uh, Houstonians aren't used to it. It's painted bright green, but they think it's still a, a lane where they could pull in and, and, and deliver goods uh, inside and out uh, of the buildings there. But, uh, but nonetheless, I think that uh, it, it's very costly and without you know, federal support, uh, I think we have to be really thinking of other ways to, to uh, maximize uh, other modes of transportation that may be a little bit more effective, maybe bus, bus rapid transit and other, other ways to, to, to find uh, more options for commuters. And I, I guess right. I would, the, you know, that's a, the funding aspect is the, the predicament that Austin faces when these, when these become ballot issues is because Austin is become, becoming one of the most unaffordable places to live in Texas, um, voters have really been voting down a lot of, of these kinds of these kinds of bonds, um, and I, I think if you know if, the, if if there's a way to find the funding, I think at some point it will be good for Austin to invest in that. But I I did not support the the last rail measure, and um, I just didn't think I, I was at a transit talk recently, and the gentleman said it's not good to put rail in until your buses are full. So if your buses aren't even full yet, how can we depend on people that are, are going to actually use rail? And I think we're getting there. Um, we have, so we have Metro, Metro Rapid here and Metro Rail. Uh, Metro Rail, though, was built on existing track. So that's why I think that was easier for the, for the voters to accept. But um, I think we need to, we need to you know, it, it's, a, it's a culture change. And, and that's a hard thing for Texans. You're, you're so used to depending on your car. So, 
I think at, at some point it might be feasible for Austin to have rail. I don't, I don't think we're there yet, but then it's kind of the chicken and egg thing. Um, as my colleague from Houston said, they're at a point where it's too late. So it's, it's finding that, that place where you know, our, buses, our buses are full, now it's ready, but then you don't want to build it too late. So um, it's, a, it, it's a predicament that I'm sure many other cities are facing. Could I add one distinction, just so that we're all clear, that we're not conflating light rail with modern streetcar? What El Paso's doing, I think, is an option for all of us. Yeah. I don't think there's any, there's no too late for modern streetcar. Yeah. And it's, it, but what you're going to hear from planners is that modern streetcar is not a traffic mitigation solution. And they're right about that. It doesn't take a lot of road, cars off of your roads. It doesn't really eliminate commutes. What you'll find, though, is that your businesses, your local businesses and your, your neighborhood serving businesses will, will kiss you on the cheek for, for giving them these customers that slowly go by their businesses and can get on and off, and it, it creates an urban fabric that's very different from light rail. I think that um, <clears throat> I think that El Paso, you know, has that opportunity with this with this streetcar line really to to look proactively about encouraging that sort of density um, that used to exist in the in the center core um, in the 1920s downtown not downtown all of El Paso had 125,000 people, 63 miles of of streetcar line, um, it was probably the it was the biggest city between San Antonio and Los Angeles, um, and I think that you add that that cultural aspect of using these cars that ran between the United States and Mexico, you're really looking at something special there. Um, and the folks that do ride streetcars are not necessarily the same same people that would ride buses. Um, you're looking at an additional an additional ridership um, that would be there. I mean, people in El Paso remember, you know, they're they're. They remember being kids with their abuelas, their, their grandparents riding the streetcars um, back in the day. And so there's this tremendous nostalgia there um, as well. Um, when it comes towards, towards rail, um, you know, and you talk about regionalism as, as a need for a, a light rail, you know, El Paso had 63 miles of, of rail at one point. In 1968, there was a plan for a monorail between Juarez and El Paso, believe it or not, if you can imagine a time where we could have that relationship between the United States and Mexico. However, every single day you have tens of thousands of people that cross over from Juarez, Mexico into El Paso and vice versa to work, to shop, to live. And so the question of how is it that we can harvest our human capital on the border, how is it that we can go and make it easier not just for goods to cross but for people to cross for work, um, for leisure and for living is a question that, that could also be addressed through, through rail as well. And, and Ben, you, you, you bring up the, the quintessential question, though, how do we pay for all this? And what, what our constituents continue to tell us is that if you bring us a sensible plan, we will vote for it. So what we've, we've lear been learning over the course of the last um, several years is that we need to think more broadly and we need to be, as, as you put it, mode agnostic. We need to go ask people what, what, what are the challenges in their areas with transportation, where are they trying to get to, where are they trying to go, uh, and then build a transportation system around that that addresses actual needs and bring it to the voters. Um, we've got lots of capacity within our local governments, especially when we leverage what funds are available st through state and federal opportunities, but we know that any comprehensive solution, especially if it's an alternative mode, is not going to come to fruition unless we have voter support. Mm-hmm.
Uh, I've got at least one more question for them, but if any of you uh, have questions, maybe you could make your way to, <coughs> to the mics now or, or while, we're, while they're answering this next question. Let's talk about bikes. Austin has been uh, very aggressive, uh, it, particularly over the last five or so years, in adding bike lanes, uh, bike trails, uh, uh, through the influence of a former council member, Chris Riley. Uh, uh, but it's generally accepted as a, by the policymakers with the city. Uh, but even now, with that, the percentage of people that use a bike to commute has basically gone from about 1% to 2%, higher near downtown, as you would, would expect. Shorter distances, it's easier to do. Um, I, would, I would wonder for the rest of you, or Ms. Garza can address as well, how valuable is that if it's, if it's going to stay in those sort of percentages? I'll start with Austin. Um, we, we are a lot more bike friendly in Austin, and um, I know, in, and I think in a recent the Bike Master Plan, there was some statistics about 15% of people would use their bike in just a bike lane, but that it went up to 55% if they were protected bike lanes. And so there has been an effort to include that. I think the drag was one of the first, uh, Guadalupe, right here in front of the university, was one of the first experiments in that. Um, our buses are also equipped with bike racks so, so people can get on the bus and then go that, go that extra mile. Um, and I, I, think, I think people would be more, feel more safe with those, protected, um, with those protected lanes. I know I certainly would use bikes more. With, and, and again, it's, it's, it's a big culture thing. I think a lot of people that use bikes more in Austin are usually people that didn't grow up in Austin. They're, they're people that are coming to us from the West Coast. And so I think, again, it's just another tool that we can use um, to, to add to that multi, multimodal system to um, give, pe give people those options. Um, we talked about density, and there, there it is again. If we, if we create situations where we add density and put people a little bit closer to downtown, they can hop on their bike, hopefully in that protected lane, um, and get to their, their work. And then there's also, you know, we also need to think about when they're going to work, um, we need to encourage businesses to provide, you know, a place to change and a place to, you know, go into the locker room and be able to do that. And I, I know Austin's become a lot more friendly with that, and I, I really do like the direction that we're headed. Well, and I would say that there's two things. I agree with everything she just said, but the, we're trying to get our inner loop in Dallas connected up. It's, it's built in sections, and the connections aren't done yet. An inner bike loop? Yes. The, the, we're calling it the core master plan for reasons I can't explain. But the, <laughs> the, uh, um, it will, we think, will uh, encourage bike commuting. But also, um, and there's a recent study out that says that if you go to protected facilities, on-street or trail facilities, that you will eventually, over time, build up to that six, seven, eight, nine percent number on commuting. You, I think you're, we're just not there yet in Texas. But the other thing I was going to mention is that it's an economic development driver because you know these corporate relocation specialists and people who are scouting um, places for businesses to operate and millennials. They're, they have a different checklist of things they're looking for. And when I'm talking about a relo expert, I'm talking about somebody with an actual checklist, and it says bike and walkability. And if you don't have it, you may be off the list. Yeah, I think that uh, El Paso just recently, maybe two months ago, opened up their bike share. It's a B-cycle as well. Um, and my office has received maybe about a half dozen calls from um, business owners asking how is it that they can get 
uh, cycle station placed in front of their in front of their offices, in front of their their businesses, because they realize that it's a draw. And again, when it comes to those millennials, when it comes to those young, educated workers that are highly mobile, that a city like El Paso, which has had probably one of the highest um, percentages of brain drain um, out of any city in the United States, it's absolutely important to to be competitive and to make gestures towards those towards those workers um, that can choose to live wherever they want to live. Well, now we come to the lightning round because I see there's four different questions, so uh, maybe we keep our answers shorter. Go ahead. Hi, um, my name is Lorena Reina, and I live in Austin. And um, I just wanted to hear your opinion about um, rideshare as a, a transportation strategy, and also I would like to know why there is resistance to it um, in, you know, Austin, San Antonio. <laughs> We're in the middle of, of this. I know San Antonio just San Antonio just went through this. I will say there is not resistance to it. Um, that seems to be the message that a certain company likes to put out there, but there is not resistance. We have made it clear through several meetings with the different TNCs that we believe that they are a very important part of our transportation network. It's balancing that with what those of us believe are public safety concerns. And I don't think you have to have one or the other. I really think that you can have both. And so it's usually the issue of fingerprinting. That's where the resistance comes in. But we've done our homework and, and learned that best practices, that's the best way to background check. Then why can't I get an Uber <laughs> Black in Austin? I, I don't know. <laughs> I've been wandering, I mean, it drives me nuts. <laughs> I don't I, know what an Uber Black I'll, is. I'll say, you know, it's difficult for me to answer this because I, I am, in my city, I'm known as a, a very, very strong proponent of lowered regulations for this industry. And, and the challenge really isn't for us Uber and Lyft. I mean, it's really unfortunate that it's become a conversation about Uber and Lyft. This is about what's the regulatory environment that's necessary to let private transportation industries evolve and create new options for consumers. We're not going to build, like we said, we're not going to build our way out of this mess. It's got to be a series of options. It's got to be innovation. We just learned, uh, I just learned this week, Tesla now has their autonomous software available. We've got to be looking at things like that that are part of the future of how transportation is going to be solved. The TTI uh, director, uh, David Christensen, I believe is his name, uh, talked about, has a great story of talking about 100 years ago, their challenge for urban policy was, how do we deal with all this horse manure in our communities? Um, well, cars dealt with that pretty well, but now cars developed a whole new set of problems. This, this issue with rides here and the disruption to the transportation industry for me, is, is an opportunity for us to be forward with policymaking because we don't know what's next. And so, you know, I, I, for, in my personal point of view, I think we need to remove barriers as much as possible to letting that innovation thrive. And it's not because of Uber and Lyft, it's just what after, what's after Uber and Lyft. Let's go to this man over here. Thank you. My name is Jared Gammon, and I live here in Austin, um, where we've seen a rapid transformation from a big town to a global city. Um, and with that comes a shift in mindset of, you know, Austin-centric planning versus regional planning with regard to transportation. So my question is for Councilwoman Garza, um, you know, what opportunities do you see from a regional planning standpoint for Austin? And then also um, for Councilman uh, Kingston, you referenced your, you know, Dallas Metroplex planning and how you guys work with some of the suburbs. Can you give us any advice? 
Well, I would say one of the broad issues from a regional standpoint is that we have to start accepting, Austinites need to really start accepting that we can't stay the sleepy college town we have. And so that's been a lot of why we're, we're in the situation that we're in. Um, and it goes back to, you know, a, a lot of our transportation, I guess, agencies, unfortunately, we're, we're a little bit siloed. Um, you have, you know, Austin, all, the city runs Austin roadways, but then there's also arterials that you wouldn't think, for example, South Congress is not a city road, it's actually a textout road. So then you have textout running those roads, and then you have Cap Metro. Thankfully, there are some of us, I, I sit on the Cap Metro board, so, we're, so there's ways that we can start making this, these conversations um, together and thinking about this stuff together. Um, one of the first questions I ask and developers know when they come meet in my offices is they know that I want to talk about affordable housing and transit <laughs> and how close they are to transit. And so it's been great that they come in and they say that. We know you like affordable housing and we know you, you want transit. And so um, it's, it's having policymakers who, who um, understand the importance of that, that we, we, we can't shut the gates of Austin. That, that's really not an option. And so um, we just need to really put an emphasis on bringing all, the, all our organizations together, because I also sit on Campo. So, you know, I get to see all the different perspectives. I get to see our transit, I get to see the, the regional, and then I get to see the city side, I think, which is really important to have, to have more of these conversations together. And I think, um, I think you know, a d density, again, I think it's a big part of, of, uh, of getting people into areas where it's affordable, near transit. And so it's a, it's a big policy shift, but I think this new council is very open to all of those ideas. I'll go real fast. Um, regionalism has to mean for the large legacy regional players, the Dallas's, the Houston's, the San Antonio's, the Austin's, it has to mean on every level that a regional deal benefits both parties. And that is a simple answer which is structurally impossible to pull off because <laughs> of our MPO system. In 94, Congress pushed all the federal dollars into regional MPOs Ours is, is the North Central Texas Council of Governments. It puts disproportionate political power over planning in the hands of the suburbs, and it takes all of the planning out of the spotlight, out of public view. It makes it less transparent. It was better when the legislature fought over it. The one, the one little bright spot that we have <coughs> currently in Texas is that the, uh, the Department of Transportation is probably better than it's ever been. And they're running a very uh, progressive study in North Texas right now talking about urban core transportation problems in Dallas and recommendations for solving those. And so the, you, I don't know that you would necessarily guess that with a bunch of PERI appointees you would wind up with this really progressive, well-run state agency, but it's a, it's a blessing. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I want to talk about land use policy again and sort of this... I see as a generational kind of uh, conflict. Uh, it seems anecdotally in Austin when there are groups who are pro-density, they tend to lean younger. Groups that oppose density tend to be the sort of established um, older homeowners. And, but those are also the people who tend to vote. So I wonder how you sort of deal with this fundamental conflict of planning for the future um, given those sort of political constraints. I've proposed recently. I've recently proposed in the city of San Antonio that we change our elections to November, 
Uh, but there, I mean, you bring up a great point, which is there's this uh, dichotomy between the voting population and the growing demographic in all of our urban cities. Uh, if the answer is as simple as go vote, that's what I'd tell you. Uh, but I think it's got to be a balance. We've been working very hard on mixed-use development. San Antonio's urban school districts, for instance, SAISD, has seen exodus over the last 15 years. And part of that is because the housing stock downtown, we talked about boosting up urban housing units, has been primarily for the demographic that you represent. It's not for the four and five member family. And so until we figure out how to make the four and five family dwelling unit profitable for redevelopment in the urban core, at the same time we're putting incentives in there for the other housing stock, I think we're going to continue to sell, we're going to continue to face that issue. In the meantime, let's vote. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. In Houston, the average voting age is 64 uh, years of age. Oh, so uh, there, there's an entire demographic that's wow. not being heard, that's not helping shape policy. And while they're very significant, they're very silent. And so uh, while some of us may advocate for certain things like complete streets, which I have, and, and, and uh, our bus reimagining system and rideshare and other things, uh, it, it, you really don't have that, that, that groundswell, if you will, of, 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 of people at the table uh, really advocating and, and helping shape the direction of our city. Yeah, we have a less than a 10% voter turnout in El Paso. It's, it's pretty pathetic. Um, but we were fortunate that the previous city council uh, that was there was very progressive um, in their thinking. We also had switched over to city manager form of government, which I really think enabled a lot of progressive thoughts and ideas to sort of be implemented um, through planning. And with the streetcar, with Montecio, with smart growth, um, and new urbanism is starting to flower up, we're starting to see the fruits of, of that, um, that kind of thought process going on within the government. Probably the last question. Hi, my name is Kelly. I live in Central Austin and work in Central Austin along the Airport Boulevard corridor. I take advantage of most of the services that the city provides for us. I ride my bike in the bike lanes. I use uh, the rail and uh, Cap Metro um, buses. And most of the time, I love our transportation system. The times that I don't like it is when I have to drive my car to work. Um, since we've added the rail system along, Cap along Airport Boulevard, it has stopped all road traffic during peak travel times on the road. So my question to you is, you mentioned that all these various agencies are working together in their planning. Is there some planning going on so that the new forms of transportation and the density-centric transportation doesn't interfere with existing transportation? I would say, again, that what I meant was we're not working together, unfortunately, oh, okay. that, 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 that they're siloed, but but I gave the example of me where I have the, I can sit, I sit on Campo and Cap Metro and the city council. So I'm one little example of where, you know, we can be working together. Um, but yeah, those, that, that's the perfect example of what happens when those conversations are siloed and, and who, who, who should solve a problem like that. And so um, I don't have a specific answer for you, but I'd be willing to ask at the next Cap Metro board meeting. I'll take that. How we can. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think that's it. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you. And thank you to the board.